If you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark. There is a, a connection always with the Lord's Supper and our sermons, because if there's not, we're looking at the text the wrong way. But we celebrate the new covenant that came through Jesus Christ, and it celebrates our salvation. We rejoice with reverence and joy and singing in our salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us this ordinance to observe. And one of the reasons that Jesus gave it is so we can observe and to remember him by, we remember and we carry his message to the world. And that's what this sermon is about this morning. Now, some of you may have read, pre-read the, the scripture I had called out earlier in the week, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And maybe at the top of yours, they put some heading in there, end times, or what's going to happen at the end, or signs of the end of the age. But that's not really what Jesus is saying in these particular verses today. He's talking about something much more important. So listen as I read this, and then we'll explore that. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will deceive many. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. But say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the warning. Thank you for the heads up. And thank you for the truth that this gives us to keep our minds focused and our lives on point for you. You didn't save us just to scare us. You didn't save us just to bring us into eternal bliss or give us comfort down here. You saved us to send us. Help us to see that this morning in these words. In your son's name I pray, amen. So to give you some context again what, where they are, they are leaving the temple on Wednesday of Passion Week. In two days, Jesus will be probably, at this point, he'll be hanging on a cross or if not already dead. And Jesus has been teaching in the temple all week. 
or all day, I mean. He's been there pretty much all day teaching different things. And we went through that in some of verse 11, verse 12, I mean, chapter 11, chapter 12. And then after he's pointed to the widow's offering, which was last week's passage, after he points to the widow's offering, he leaves the temple. He departs. He walks out. And as he's walking out, the disciples call his attention to something. Now, Mark is really compiling a lot of Jesus's words in one spot, kind of in a condensed form of what's going to happen at the end. And that's why it's all contained in chapter 13 of Mark. But Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21 captures a lot of the same things, maybe with a a few extra things. You know, but many scholars have wrote on these verses. (laughs) There's a lot of books out there about the end of time and the end of the age. But I want you to see this morning what Jesus is really concerned about in this passage, what he's really wanting his disciples and us to think about and to focus on. The main point of this this whole passage is verse 10. It is necessary for the gospel to go out to all nations. So Jesus gives some warnings and and some focus for the future, so for his disciples, so they can be prepared for what's coming. And Jesus gave us that same one focus for the future. That is necessary, as he says, no matter what we face. What is the one purpose Jesus gives us to combat all future events, to calm our hearts, to keep us focused and not distracted? Gospel proclamation. Proclaiming the gospel. Getting it out there, wherever we are. Gospel proclamation will keep our eyes on the right purpose. During any tribulations we face, even, even in comfortable America, keeping our eyes on the gospel. It is our mission because the first point is that the future is uncertain. The future is totally uncertain. Look at what Jesus tells them. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. As he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? It's almost like, do you see this? Like, almost kind of a rebuke. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when they, all these things are about to be accomplished? <clears throat> so, they're, they're coming out of the temple, and all of a sudden, the disciples are just so enamored with that building. They're distracted by it almost. But you know what? It was a very impressive building. Let me describe it to you a little bit. The, the, uh, the temple at this time in the first century, it, it was the second temple. The first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 B.C. The second temple was erected in 516 B.C. But this has been renovated by Herod, Herod the Great. And he, he did it for his own glory, by the way, so he didn't do it for God. But he, he made it pretty, pretty magnificent. First of all, on the east side that faces east, there's gold down the whole front. The whole front is kind of plastered or placked, placked in gold. The courtyards have been expanded to be much larger than even Solomon's temple to accommodate the crowds coming to worship God, or Herod, if he, in his mind, probably. The stones on the outside of the temple were polished white stones. They weren't marble, but they were polished white stones that had been imported. And they were of enormous size. You know, and it's funny, Jesus says, do you see these? These don't matter. They're going to be gone. 
But do you know the gospel? Because it's eternal. And so Jesus shocks them with the news of this temple's demise. The temple is going to be gone. It's going to be torn down. Not one stone on another. Complete destruction. Now, think about the size of this temple. You may not understand completely, but the southeast corner of the temple actually rose 200 feet above the floor of the valley where it was built. 200 feet. It was an enormous, impressive structure. It was kind of a, a modern marvel, marvel. And to say that the temple was going to be destroyed is kind of like us saying the Twin Towers are going to fall down or the Pentagon is going to be blown up. It just blew their minds. It just, no, that can't happen. And then Jesus kind of crosses that valley across from the temple to the east, the Mount of Olives, one of his favorite spots, and he sits down on that mount, and he's looking down on the, on the temple, on Jerusalem, and then four of his first disciples come and ask him a questions, ask him a couple of questions. They ask him questions that we all want to know. When and what? When's it going to happen and what's the signs? What's going to tell us? But you know what? They're really asking the wrong questions. They're really asking the wrong questions, and Jesus corrects them on that. Instead of when and what, they should be asking what should we be doing in the meantime? How should we spend our time? So Jesus gives them that answer anyway. The future is very uncertain, and the one who knows it wants us to keep our eye on him, not worry about the future. Think about it. Where were you when you heard John F. Kennedy was assassinated or the Challenger blew up or Reagan was shot or the Twin Towers in New York City had fallen down or the Pentagon had been crashed into? You remember that feeling there, kind of uncertainty of like, really, really, did this just happen? It was, it was quite a day when the, the towers fell. I'm, I remember a, a discussion that General Tommy Franks, who was the commander of Central Command at that time, he was asking a lecture series, what's your biggest fear, General Franks? And he said, someone crashing an airplane into one of our skyscrapers. It did happen. It happened pretty soon after that. That was what he was afraid of. But James tells us not to be afraid of the future, not to even be overconfident in the future, but to give it to God. James says in chapter 4, verse 13 through 7, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What Jesus spoke here did happen. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus Vespasian, he conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple completely. He built a fire. They burned the temple to the point where the, the stones, these great stones that the disciples were excited about, turned to ash and dust. It, they crumbled, complete nothing. And it was completely cleared off the lot where the temple was sitting and pushed into the Kidron Valley to the east. It was, it was done away with. Not one stone will be left on another. All will be cleared away. So what Jesus said came true. But temple destruction is not important to Jesus. 
Matter of fact, at that point in time, it was a symbol of hypocrisy and bad religion. What's important to Jesus is gospel preaching. That's the most important thing. Now, you may see pictures today of what's called the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Well, that's actually foundational retaining wall stones. That is not stones that were actually of the temple. It is not the western wall of the temple. It's a retaining wall. Matter of fact, there's even Solomon's foundation stones are even below that. And I got to go in the tunnel to see that. They're humongous stones. But this is not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the temple proper, the whole building. And it's gone. Now, God may plan for a third temple. I don't know. Some people think it might happen. Some people think it's symbology in the scriptures. But we know that Jesus' words came true. And God may change the future as you and I know it or as you and I think about it. And he may change your future without your approval. He may change your future. And, and you don't get any say in it. So we need to live our life with open hands and open hearts. We need to live in, in the way we're going to just accept what God brings our way. Because sometimes we arrogantly make future plans. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. We make future decisions. We boast on them sometimes. Our, our pride sometimes rests in our grandiose plans for things. You know, from the widow's story last week, we need to remember that we need to live our lives giving God all access to every aspect of our life. Not giving him access to our life is sin. James made it pretty, pretty clear. So we need to not worry about that. The gospel, that's what we need to focus on. It gives us security. If you don't have security from the gospel, maybe you're not saved. The gospel gives us security. It's security for our future. Our soul is safe in eternity in God's hands. We don't have to worry about that anymore. So we can let God's plans come to us, whatever they may be, however he directs our paths. And Paul says in all things, he has counted his plans, Paul's plans, as rubbish. They're just nothing. Christ's gospel is everything. So we need to live content in what God brings to you. Stop trying to control the future. It is very uncertain. And Jesus is making that clear to his disciples. So here in verses 1 through 4, we see that the future is uncertain. It's unknown. It's undiscernible. It's even scary, especially without God. And the end is beyond forecasting or predicting. The end is unpredictable, verses 5 through 8. Listen to what Jesus tells them. Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and he will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So it's very unpredictable, the end. And Jesus is kind of giving them a, a glimpse of that. He responds to their questions with more directions and warnings than he does answers. Like when is it going to happen and what's going to happen. First of all, he says, don't be deceived by false Christs. Don't be deceived by people who come and say, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. He says, they're not real. You know what? And over the last 2,000 years, there have been a lot of people that came, especially in the first and second centuries, that said they were the Messiah. There's been many that claimed themselves to be Jesus Christ returned in the flesh. Even in our time frame, some of you may not know about Jim Jones. But that's what he claimed. 
And 700 people lost their life because he was a madman. He was not the Christ. David Koresh claimed that he was Christ. And a lot of people lost their lives in the Waco incident. Don't allow your hearts to be deceived by pretenders. Read your Bible and know the true Christ. Read your Bible and know the true Christ. That's what Jesus is telling them. It's what he's telling us. And then he talks about wars and rumors of wars. You know, wars have been going on for 4,500 years. And at no particular time are there more wars than any other time. Out of what is one stat I read, out of 3,800 years, there's only been 268 years of per, pure peace. It's a very small percentage. Humankind has fought each other since Cain and Abel. Okay? And Jesus says this is normal. This will happen. It doesn't mean anything. Wars do not signal the end of time. There may be wars going on at the end, but wars are not the end of time. They are not the end. Even nuclear war will not be the end. Nations, kingdoms, regimes, people will fight. All these will rise up. There will be great shifts in political structures. We're watching one in the Ukraine and Russia right now. It's going to happen. And disasters will occur. Earthquakes, famines, droughts. It's going to be enormous. There's going to be geographical calamities that happen. We've had floods. We've had all kinds of stuff. But you know what? There's been no significant increase in earthquakes since they've been recording them. No real significant increases in earthquakes or droughts or famine. Jesus talks about these events because they scare us. They scare us. And not, not long before Jesus came to earth, there was an earthquake in, uh, in the region. There is a fault line that runs through Jerusalem. They scare us. They make us fear things. And, and the end might be there. But you know, one of the things about Jesus is he knows that there's three earthquakes coming one day that are greater than any earthquake we'll ever experience before then. In Revelation 6, Revelation 11, and Revelation 16, three earthquakes are described there that are terrible, that eliminate large percentages, large percentages of the population, destroy the earth. Matter of fact, the one in Revelation 16 reshapes the earth almost. It's terrible descriptions. But these items are not the end either. They're the start, he says, of birth pains. Start of birth pain. He uses a metaphor here. It's the beginning of labor to birth. Not close to birth yet, but closer. So think of the metaphor. It's nine months to gestate a baby, and labor is usually a few hours. A few hours compared to nine months, that's less than 1% of the time is spent in labor. So ever how old the earth is, you can figure out and do the math. But Jesus tells them the end of time is very unpredictable by your ability. You can't predict it. Only God knows. And we need to accept that. Accept that and spend time spreading the gospel. You, you, you're watching on the news, if you've watched any recently, forest fires, droughts everywhere. Now I saw today that they're predicting a flood in Los Angeles or Southern California that's worse than they've ever seen. I know the floods in eastern Kentucky, the water was six feet higher than the last flood in 1957. That's a significant increase. Those things are going to happen. Wars, invasions, terrorist events, etc. All of that scares us too. All of us 
makes us fearful. And many people out there claim that these are apocalyptic type things. These are end time signals. Even some of the people involved claim that they're, they're part of the end time structure. But it's not the end. Jesus made it very clear. It's not the end. But keeping the gospel our focus, that will keep us from being deceived. That's how we stay on track. That's how our minds stay focused, is keeping the gospel. The gospel will dispel the rumors because we're focused on God's word. There are two passages in scripture I think that can help us understand the unpredictability and how to deal with it. First one is Isaiah 48, and this will be familiar to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. God's word is going to last forever no matter what. We can depend on that. That's why we need to spend time in it, because it's the only truth we really have. And the other verse that we have in the Bible that helps us is Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have nothing to fear when our Savior is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And you know what? Jesus will return in a very obvious way. There'll be no manger. There'll be no subtly slipping into society. He will come on clouds. People will know that Jesus came back. It will be obvious. And that's our truth that we can live on. We need to depend on two things, God's Word and God's Son. Those two things get us through any calamity that we face. And these warnings and directions that Jesus gave, they apply to us now as well as the apostles then. Jesus is looking ahead for them and preparing them and for us. Are you letting the 24-hour news shows drive your mind, guide your mind, control your concerns, feed your fears? Jesus tells us plainly, don't be deceived by all these events, claims or predictions. It'll be interesting to see if that flood they're predicting in Los Angeles actually happens. Tragedies do not control God. God controls the tragedies. And that's what we need to remember. We need to hold on to that. No matter what's going on, it's not out of control. Trust in God so you won't fear the worst. There will be an end to this world. That's guaranteed in Scripture. There will be an end. No one can predict it. And anything that happens now is not it. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. Our efforts need to focus on getting the gospel to people. Leading them to trust Jesus for their life. Because when the end comes, it will be everlasting too late for them. If they don't know Jesus, if they haven't trusted in him. Eternity is grand, I promise you. Heaven is great. Because I read the word, it tells me heaven's great. And I believe it. And it's real. And Jesus is the only way to that. Let's focus on Jesus now. Because the end will come and then eternity. And the question for you is, are you ready? Are you ready for that? So Jesus has told them the future's uh, uncertain. The end is unpredictable. It's fuzzy. It consumes too much energy of our time. 
So Jesus tells us to focus on his message. Look at verses 9 through 13. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you by, at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, Jesus is giving some pretty direct warnings to the apostles. And this will happen and has happened after the Pentecost when the church is birthed, when the church is born. But these also apply to us. Persecution is coming for them. Jesus is giving them a heads up. Persecution is coming. You can't avoid it. You won't be able to bow out of it. You won't be able to duck it or hide from it. Jesus is forewarning them to be prepared for it. Jesus says, be on your guard, watch out, be ready. Not that this will prevent the persecution. He's not telling them to watch out so they can hide from it or dodge it. They won't be able to. It won't prevent it. It'll help them handle it. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen, they will hand you over. You will be flogged. You will stand before kings and governors when they arrest you. When they arrest you, not if they arrest you. So these men were going to go through it, and they all did. These things will happen, and you, 12 guys, or 11 really, can plan on it. People will attempt to snuff out the church, the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Paul was one of those guys that was trying to do that. All these things did happen, and they still happen today. And Jesus says the purpose for all these persecutions is to be a witness. You're going to stand before kings and governors and all kinds of people to be a witness. You know, the Greek word for witness is martyr, where we get the word for dying for your faith. It's kind of interesting. Give a testimony of the gospel to your enemies. That's what Jesus is saying. You're, you're put there for a purpose, not to recant your faith, not to bow out, not to hide, not to just take it on the chin, but to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? What, what is the outcome of this intense persecution? What is Jesus saying here? Verse 10, it is necessary. Necessary. When Jesus says something's necessary, we should probably take it pretty seriously. I mean, we're talking the, the king of the universe, the creator of all things. Jesus himself says it is necessary for the gospel to be preached, proclaimed, spoken, testified to all peoples. Whenever you see the word nation in your Bible, you can probably assume it means language or ethnic group, ethno-linguistic groups. It really isn't talking about a political government type situation. It's talking about peoples. And Jesus is telling them, and he's telling us, the gospel spreads and the church grows when the church is under pressure. The blood of tear and tears of martyrs and witnesses produces the fruit of the gospel ministry. Souls are saved when Christians are persecuted. It's been proven for 2,000 years. The church in China is probably bigger than the church in the United States. The real church, I should say. And they've just been under persecution for decades. 
And this is why the Holy Spirit gives you the words to say when you're put under persecution. Because Jesus put you there to be a witness. He put you there to testify. The Holy Spirit came to promote Jesus Christ. And this promise of words for you when you're in the middle of it is for those who are under persecution. Those who are pressed hard for answers to their faith or why. You know, Peter tells us to be ready to give, give a reason for the hope that's in us. So this is not Jesus saying, but you don't have to prepare for that. Read your Bible. You need to know your Bible, especially now that they didn't have that. We do. We need to be prepared. But the Holy Spirit will even help you in that realm. And then he said, Jesus says, the hatred's going to get worse. Worse? Worse than standing before kings and governors who can take my life like that? Yes, it's going to get worse. Brothers will betray brothers. Fathers will betray children. Children will betray their parents, rise up against them, to put them to death. Not to just get them arrested or get them out of their house or get them out of their face. They will put them to death. And even in this turmoil and this family dysfunction that's going on, the gospel is our anchor. It is how you're going to get through this, is the gospel. Speak it to them anyway, no matter how much they hate you. No matter how much they tell you they don't want to hear it. Get the gospel in front of them. The hatred will be deep and intense. It'll even be violent against the followers of Christ. Jesus is not kidding about this. To the end of such intense hatred, faith will endure, though. That's what he says at the end. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying that those truly saved who believe in him until death are the ones who endure any persecution, even death. That's who's going to be here at the end. Those who can survive this. Those Jesus saves can last to the end because the gospel is unwavering. It is true. And the faith in the gospel is fearless. Just so you know, the 11 disciples that were left, as well as the 12th one that was added in Acts chapter 1, most of them died for their faith. Most of them were killed. Some had their head chopped off. Some was crucified upside down. Many of them died. John's the only one that we know that, was, that died a natural death, but he was in exile because of his faith. But you know what? Religious violence still exists today. I don't know if any of you know who Salman Rushdie is. He was a man that wrote the satanic verses about the Muslim faith. He was stabbed yesterday while he was giving a lecture by a Muslim who was still seeking revenge. I mean, the Ayatollah of Iran had put out a death contract on this man back in the 80s for writing that book. Evidently, someone's still trying to collect. There is still religious violence out there. And the same type of thing is happening all over the world to people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. India, China, the Middle East, Africa, sometimes in Canada, sometimes in Mexico, sometimes in South America. It's all over the world. But you know what's funny is Jesus calls the persecuted, he calls them blessed. 
He calls them rewarded. He calls them joyful. He calls them glad. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, this is what Jesus says. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus doesn't give us an option to avoid it. He gives us the call to face it when it comes. And Jesus tells them that severe treatment is coming for their allegiance to him. And none of them back down. I mean, Peter denied him three times before he was crucified. But after that, Peter was on fire. It's a fact for them that we'll face persecution. Is it a fact for us? Is it a fact for us? Have you ever been persecuted for your faith? Not ridiculed, not, not made fun of, not scorned, persecuted. There's a big difference. I know I haven't. Even in all the witnessing I've done on college campuses, I've never seen anybody get mad at me because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Even in Madagascar, when we were there for six weeks, we were among believers, and a lot of the locals that knew us and met us, they knew why we were there. They just didn't have any concern for us. So no, I have never been persecuted for my faith. Now, are we to deliberately go out and find persecution and sub subject ourselves to that? I don't think God wants us to do it unless he's called us to do it because I can guarantee you, your faith will struggle in those situations. Because God will test your faith even now. So we need to put our life in his hands and then let him send us to spread the gospel, that that's his will. What we're to do right now, right here, is to tell others about Jesus Christ. Tell others that we believe in Jesus. Let them know that you're a Christian and that you trust Jesus with your whole heart. Exercise your faith by doing evangelism. I'm going to tell you, it, it won't feel like persecution for sure, but it will stretch you to take some time to approach someone that you may not know or even if someone you know and talk to them about Jesus. Have a gospel conversation with them. Bring up the subject of eternal life. What happens after this life? Exercise your faith in evangelism. Speak the good news. I hope you know it. I hope you know what to say to people. We need to minister in the name of Jesus where we are and let everybody know what and why we believe what we believe. And we need to give opportunity for the Holy Spirit to use the words we've studied to share with people. I find it amazing sometimes what comes out of this boy's mouth when I'm talking to people about Jesus that I don't even realize I've read or heard. He will do it. Be willing to give yourself to hostile areas. Fight injustices and evil. Things like abortion. That's still a fight going on. Homosexuality. It's, it's, just, it's confusing a lot of people. Or just the absence of the gospel in places. There's lots of places that, in America, by the way, that doesn't know what the gospel is. I meet people all the time that don't understand who Jesus is, except he's a cuss word. That's all they know. They don't know anything about him. Here, in the land of the free and the home of the brave... In 2020, we had COVID come on us, and there was a lot of talk about shutting everything down, and some churches didn't because they knew that they were supposed to open and stay open. 
And they stood for their faith. They were fined by the city, but eventually they won. But they stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sins that I've talked about, they're perversions of God's design. We talked about in creation that, that the, the world has been perverted by sin. And it's harming many people. And many people don't even know that there's a better way to live. So we need to take the full gospel to them. Be unwavering in putting the gospel to the world. Jesus says it is necessary to preach the gospel to all people. It's necessary. It's not optional. We don't, we don't get to make a choice of, well, I don't want to do that, God. I want to do something else. It's necessary. There are 17,000 language groups in the world. 17,000. Of that 17,000, 7,000 are unreached. 42% of the world's language population does not know anything about our Savior. That's sad. It gives us a focus, though. So what are we doing about it? Well, we need to fill those vacancies with the gospel. And that's one of the focuses of the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board is to reach those unreached, unengaged people groups all over the world. And they're looking for people to do it. What can we do? Well, initially, we can commit to being a sending, a supporting, and an exporting church of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be. We need to send people, we need to support people, and we need to export the gospel. If you want a healthier church, get the gospel out. That's how it happens. Tell the gospel right outside these doors and across the world. That's how a church gets healthy. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Whatever's going to happen at the end is going to happen. But our focus right now needs to be the gospel, no matter what we're going through. Worrying about the end is not going to do any good. He makes it clear that the future of the gospel is challenging, but it's certain. <laughs> you know exactly what it's going to result in. But the end is unknown. But Jesus is clearly known. And he's the only way. As I wrap this up, I want to read us a little bit of a story to you. Alex Traverston, an International Mission Board missionary to India, was beaten because he was proclaiming the gospel. And he was beaten. He was tricked into going to a, a place with a, a guy he thought was his friend. And eight men came in and beat him up. Then they threw him out the, the, the building. And the cops picked him up. And a mob began to form. And his crime? Boldly proclaiming the gospel to people in South Asia, in India. A city that is in desperate need of God's saving grace. While he was being beat, he said, I thought of my wife and my children. But then a tremendous peace passed over Traverson. He knew that God would take care of them. He prayed, Lord, I can trust you. When they got to the police station, there was a mob of over 100 people waiting. The police wanted to know why the Traverstons insisted on sharing their faith. Why would you risk this? Why would you even be in a country that doesn't want you here sharing your faith? And he says, thankfully, I was able to tell the reason for the hope that I have in Christ. After it was all over, this is a few years ago, after it was all over, they had the option of coming back to the United States. But instead of going home, 
they ultimately decided to stay. And because they stayed, the work outside their city began to exponentially explode. See, faith produces faith. Persecution will make the church grow. And they have grown. And the couple's been asked if they would do it all over again. And this is his answer. I still can't think of a more fun and fulfilling time in my life than in that year of broad proclamation of the gospel. The gospel must be preached among all peoples throughout the world in anticipation of Christ's return. That's what we're called to do. It's necessary. Jesus tells us very little about the end right here. There's very little about his second coming in these 13 verses. He points to his desire for the gospel to go out. Not when is it going to happen, not what signs can we look for, but what are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting? Let's pray to get the word out. Let's take our pastoral prayer time and just pray about your part in getting the gospel out. Pray for the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody this week. Pray whether God's wanting to send you somewhere to take the gospel to some unreached people group. Let's pray about that right now. Have a time of silent prayer and then I'll close this out.